0: My name is Mike Hagan. It's 9 a.m. on Friday morning, which means it's once again time for Open Mic Radio. Today, a special two-hour show. I'll be joined by Speaking of the Arts, Diana Moxon. Hi, Diana. Hello. Hello. Sharing some of our favorite interviews and music from 2019. We're going to start this first Friday off with a song from one of my favorite local personalities. His name is Justin Hickerson, and this is a song called Blue Eyes. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Mike and Diana. (music)
1: that my biggest fear was one day you'd reappear even after all these years and now you're here i gotta tell you i've been holding my breath i ain't getting no rest just sitting here scared to death
0: go. That's where we're going to start off this Friday morning. A lovely song there from my buddy, Justin Hickerson. That was recorded here in the studio, Diana, in uh, February, February 22nd of 2019. Welcome to the program. It's open mic radio and speaking Speaking of of the the arts, arts. open speaking of the open mic radio arts.
2: (laughs) Speaking about open mic. There
0: we go. (laughs) I'm here with my good friend, Diana Moxon. Diana's the host of KOPN's speaking of the arts, and typically is on the air immediately after this program. But Diana and I decided to combine our shows this morning in sort of an end-of-year, beginning-of-the-year look back at 2019, and I'm glad. It's going to be fun. What do you got What do you got going today, Diana? Well, we
2: did the same thing last year, and it, and it was great, too. And so it was, I was fun, yeah. It was fun to combine the two, because I think our shows work very well together. So I chose... It was impossible. I mean, I had a whole year... So it's 52 weeks and then two interviews in each. So 104 interviews to choose from, and I could just choose six.
0: tell you what. I know I had the same uh, (laughs) challenge. I had all kinds of different folks in here over the course of the year, and I had to pick seven or eight songs. But uh, I think we got a pretty good collection of stuff. You know, before we get there, let me say thanks real fast to the guys that were here last week. Um, before we get too busy, yeah, the Hooten Hollers and the Goldbugs. Uh, last week we had a real fun radio show with those guys and a fantastic New Year's Eve show featuring both of those bands. The Hooten Hollers were in town. First show they did, I think, were, I mean, they hadn't done much in 2019 in Columbia at all. I think that may have been the only show they did here all year. Anyway, and uh, a reunion from the Goldbugs, and we had them here in the studio and Johnny on the phone and Justin calling in, and Durnley, and Dave Durnley, of course, uh, on that bill as well. Just a fantastic show last uh, Tuesday night. So, what'd you do for that for the well, holidays? I, I, w- and I would
2: have loved to have been there, but actually, I flew on a private plane to oh. a secluded resort in the Caribbean to to party with international celebrities.
0: Well, that's just typical of you, <laughs> my jet setting partner here. Oh, wait, from no, me. that was
2: my old life. No, <laughs> I just stayed in.
0: <laughs> well, I bet it was fun anyway. What's Tom up to? Did you guys do anything for New Year's? Just had a nice quiet one.
2: We went out for dinner to. Library for their fixed price menu and it was fantastic was really really awesome food and then uh, we wandered back and we ended the evening with a little party at our house with some other friends and played games and drank champagne and hoped for good things for the new year
0: yeah, it didn't start off didn't so well, apparently. So well. But we're going to try to try to keep, keep a smile on our face, though, here. Anyway, all right, well, let's play one more song, and then we'll come back and we'll do a, we'll do one of your first pieces. Okay. I think you've got something with uh, Simone, right? I have
2: the fabulous Simone
0: Sparks. She was amazing.
2: She is amazing. Every time I see her, I just i am a complete fangirl. She's incredible.
0: <laughs> well, we'll hear that in just a few minutes, and we're going to freshen up with one more piece of music here. This is a gentleman whose name is Andrew Ryan. Andrew is a friend of mine, a singer-songwriter, makes his home in St. Louis but tours all around the country and he was nice enough to stop by here in June I guess of 2019 and this is a song called Caladiums one of my favorites from him we'll be back in just a few minutes it's the Mike and Diana show (laughs) (laughs) our featured guest today this is Andrew Ryan Ryan from June of 2019 great stuff here in the studio that's a song called Caladiums from his uh, 2017 release actually called Across Currents but he's a great musician and he was here with a guy playing pedal steel I was telling Diana it's Hard to believe that was recorded in the studio, it sounds so good.
2: So many of the acts you have here in the studio that are playing live, it does remind me of the tiny desk concerts that NPR have that go out nationally. They're phenomenal. I mean, the musicians sound awesome in the studio. They, they play so fluidly and even though it's a tiny space, they always, sometimes I come in and there's like seven people in here <laughs> with like a whole band in here. I know. You need to make an album.
0: Yeah, I know. I've talked about that, and I I need I need to I need to live up to it and actually get it done. Okay, that's one one of my one of my additional goals for twenty twenty. I'm going to get that KOPN studio album done.
2: Okay, what all hold you to that, Mike? All right, I'm going to be I, playing I, it. I set
0: it on the air now, so now I have to do it. That's sort of my rule.
2: <laughs> on next year's Mike and Diana show, we're going to be playing excerpts from uh, the album.
0: All right. All right. That's <laughs> a deal. Open mic
2: radio album.
0: All right. So uh, once again, yeah, it's open mic radio with uh, Speaking of the Arts, combining our shows today. Diana and I will be together here until 11 o'clock. And now we're going to kind of switch gears and go over to uh, something that Diana had uh, earlier in the year. Tell me a little bit about, about what we're going to hear.
2: Simone Sparks is uh, the one of the lead singers with the fabulous Loose Loose who absolutely. you've had on the show several times. Yeah. And I have seen her on the stage. She performed in Ragtime the Musical this summer at Mizzou. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and whether you see her on the stage singing with Loose Loose or you see her on a stage performing musical theatre, she is an absolute showstopper every time. She holds my attention wherever she is. Her voice has such purity and she can also sing across multiple genres. So mm. I've heard her sing opera and we'll hear her sing opera in this little piece that I have. She sang the National Anthem
3: Oh yeah, that
0: was incredible. at the
2: Chiefs mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago and it is so phenomenal. And you hear her singing uh, rap and R&B and gospel and musical theatre and what Ever she sings her voice fits she is such a star in the making and I'm sure that we will only have her in Colombia for a few more years and then her star will go on to greater things so Simone Sparks came in on August the 9th for a little chat I know you've had the loose loose guys on your show but I thought I want to have Simone yeah, on as much as show. I wanted
0: to have the whole band I was never able to get the whole gang here so uh, it was great that you were able to have Simone she really is an amazingly talented woman
2: Let's listen to her piece.
0: All right, let's do it. It's Mike and Diana. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
2: Simone is one of two vocalists with the fabulous future soul band Loose Loose who you might have caught on a stage around Colombia over the last couple of years or maybe seen on one of this year's true-false stages. But a few weeks ago, I saw her play the role of Sarah in the MU Theatre Department's production of Ragtime, the musical, and she was totally captivating both as a singer and an actor. As I said to Simone last Friday after a super-secret Loose Loose pop-up concert, When I listen to her sing, it makes my eyes moist. So it is a delight to welcome to the show the gorgeous person and voice of Simone Sparks. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, welcome. I would not be more excited if it was Beyonce sitting here. Well, I'm trying to look at her, they say. (laughs) But better. (laughs) So I am frankly amazed that you are sitting here right now and not in your own leading actor dressing room no. in a broadway theater because <laughs> it feels like you are destined for much bigger stages than those of missouri so what does it take to get from here
4: to the footlights of broadway oh my gosh because um, you should be there yeah, oh uh, yeah i keep hearing that <laughs> um i am actually it, it the first thing is probably a mental struggle And it's about whether I'm ready, whether I'm qualified, um, whether I'm fit enough, you know, um, whether I have the range, whether, you know, I'll be able to just jump in and and be ready to go if they ask me to. And that starts in the mind. And I think after ragtime, I've hit that, that, you know, that that light bulb that came on and said, you know what, I'm actually ready to do this. And that's half the battle. The rest is, is actually formulating an exit plan, which I'm doing now. Your role as Sarah in
2: Ragtime was was magnificent. I mean, it was was an amazing cast all around. But you, even in your quiet moments, you held the stage. You had a stage presence, an aura of being there, even when
4: you weren't saying anything. What did it take to achieve that it's literally like thinking through every single piece of what's happening within the show there is uh, there was a moment where I literally sat on stage for probably about 20 minutes and didn't have a word and I was thinking I have to think through this moment what is happening until the next time I speak or the next time I sing and creating a story for that character throughout those moments is what lets me still live when there's no voice being heard so let's back up a little bit who is Simone Sparks? <laughs> where did you grow up? Um, what are some of your earliest musical memories? I am from St. Louis, originally. I grew up in the city. My family is full of singers, shy singers, but full of them. Um, but they are very talented. My mother sings, and I think that's where I kind of get the classical part of what's that little bug that's in me. My uncle sings as well. And I think that... Those things, you know, involved in my family are kind of what, got me here. I'm also a Disney fanatic. Oh my gosh, I love Disney so much. Anybody who knows me knows that. And so through years, I would watch tons of videos, movies, and I would sing with them, or I would harmonize with them, and Mom am like, what are you doing? You know. Uh, but I've always been connected in that way. And then by the time I got to high school, someone from Opera Theater of St. Louis at Webster University came and found me and said, how would you like to sing opera? And I was like, <laughs> you're a joke. Uh, but, but his name is Jermaine Smith, and he literally took me in Paid for my training To be in the preparatory program And then said all I need to do is audition And I got in and that literally Has changed my life from that point on
2: You have a phenomenal range I mean you kind of do everything You sing pop, you sing R&B You sing opera You kind of mix between the two I mean, when I listen to you sing it loosely, every now and again, your voice will push over into a little operatic Mm -hmm. and it's so enticing. How do you keep them all in a box or or do you like that to flow through?
4: So uh, I used to keep them all in separate boxes. That's how I was taught to kind of, you know, this is the opera box. This is the gospel box, right? And you keep them there. You know, oh no, don't sing. You know, I used to sing tenor at church. People were like, no, what? Are you kidding? Yes, that was my preference. And now I'm getting the chance, especially with musical theater, to put them all in one basket and figure out how to maneuver between them. And it is... Oh my goodness a phenomenal journey to figure that out and now i get the avenue through loose loose as well to make those things happen now i can sing classical or i can sing gospel or i can rap like we did on this last album i can i can literally do whatever i want and it's changing the world with my voice no matter how i use it so let's have a little musical interlude. okay mm. I know you're a little nervous about this, but yeah. I'm,
2: you know when I'm I'm googling like Simone Sparks and seeing what comes up, and so I heard you sing the national anthem at Arrowhead Stadium in August last year at the Chiefs' preseason rap game against the Green Bay Packers, mm-hmm. and you sang this in a soprano voice, and it is so beautiful, it gave me goosebumps. Let's listen to it.
5: Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early
2: I can still get goosebumps every time I hear that. But that wasn't the only national anthem you <laughs> sang last year. So the operatic version you sang for the Chiefs, and then you sang a much more R&B version for the Cleveland Browns in yeah. December. How do you end up getting two NFL kicks in one? Because surely all singers are like, oh, my goodness, to be able to sing at the NFL.
4: <laughs> yeah, I've, I decided, you know what, I want to do something bigger. And I told myself that year, you need to sing for 15,000 people or more at least three times within the next two or three years. And then I was like, I can knock this out if I sing for a game, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I just literally sent my videos out there and they picked me to do it. And I was so, so humbled. I didn't even have any nerves. It was, it was amazing. You I, went terrified. Uh, no, no. I think I'm meant to sing for, for a big crowd. <laughs> I think you are. That was the
2: amazing Simone Sparks here on Speaking of the Arts back in August. Wow. She is incredible. That rendition of the national anthem. What a voice. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, she really is remarkable.
2: And what she said to me afterwards was when she was singing that, she had headphones on or however they do it, and mm. there was a three-second delay. So she's singing flawlessly while in her ears there's a three-second oh delay, and she doesn't break no, or no. make any
0: mistakes. Yeah, I mean, doing radio, you know what it's like. They yeah, have I can't in our even ears. talk. It's like very difficult to even. <laughs> yeah, it'll mess you up really, like straight away. <laughs> well, some people are are talented. That's for sure. And we've got a bunch of them around here in Colombia. And we were talking um, during that piece uh, just about how many remarkable interviews that you've done over the course of the year. I I get to sit here across from you, and I'm not sure if everybody who's listening. To my show realizes that I stay here for the following right. hour Thank and you. I well I'm I'm so glad that you asked me to do it a couple of years ago because it's really been a great experience because uh, as much as I'm into the music scene I now know much much more about the art scene in general in in Columbia and in mid-Missouri and I that is absolutely thanks to you
2: well and I know a lot more about the music scene in mid-Missouri thanks to you so there we go it's a mutual
0: no it is it's really <laughs> admiration it, it, society it, it's really cool so anyway yeah I've I've, I've been thrilled to be able to sit across from you and get to listen and uh, and visit sometimes with uh, just some of the remarkable guests that you get on the phone sometimes as well. We were speaking about authors. You've got something from some of your author interviews coming up a little bit later?
2: I have got a couple of author interviews, and it was really tough not to choose all of them because I really yeah. enjoyed the author interviews. A couple of them we did uh, on the phone, and I think I did, I talked to eight authors last year. Alison Kofelt was here in January, and she had a book called Maps of the Lines We Draw, which is about her trip to Haiti. We had Alex George, a local... Alex Mm -hmm. George, who owns Skylark Bookshop and runs Unbound Book Festival. I mean, he's a well known author. author. He's fantastic. Jill Orr, local uh, thriller and mystery writer. She was really fun. Kira Harris, who's uh, written her first book of a seven series of fantasy fiction. Jocelyn Cullity, who wrote a book that I just loved about the Indian uh, um, first, I should call it the First War of Indian Independence, Mm -hmm. uh, which was in the 1850s. Uh, Laura McHugh, another amazing local writer who writes thrillers. Uh, Jessica Bruder, who wrote Nomad Land. That's fantastic. Yeah,
0: that was a great interview.
2: She, she and I chatted on Skype. And then just recently, Alan Eskins, another thriller writer who is from Jeff City and lives in Minnesota. And he was on the show just a couple of weeks ago.
0: Wow. You've set the bar pretty high for yourself for 2020 <laughs> here. Well, you, 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 maybe later in the show we can talk a little bit if you've got anything planned coming up that we can...
2: Oh, gosh. no, I don't uh, have anything planned. I just, you know, fly by the seat of my pants yeah, every right. week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a break here and play a piece of music. I was thrilled uh, in May... Uh, three young ladies came down that make up a band called Violence of the Violets, uh, Katie, Rachel and Maddie, although Maddie was sort of a sit-in, I think, uh, uh, during, during the spring and the summertime because they're all sort of in school now. At any rate, Violence of the Violets were here and they played a bunch of great songs and here's one of them. This one is called Mr. Machine. <laughs> I'll be back with Diana Moxon in just a minute. It's Mike and Diana. Come on, you gotta say some. It's Mike. Oh.
2: <laughs> Diana and Mike. <laughs> Diana and Mike.
0: Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't. I should. I should make sure that I keep the queen up front there. Diana and Mike show back in a few minutes.
6: This is Mr. Machine. Two, three. Four.
2: Amazing!
0: How about that? Violence of the Violets. 17 years old? Thereabouts. Yeah, maybe even less than that. I mean, uh, Katie's 17 or 18, but her little sister was playing guitar, so she can't be more than 15 or 16. Incredible. Yeah, and then uh, Maddie is uh, uh, around 20 or so now, I think. She's playing bass, and I think she went to one of the local—not local, but a a college that uh, specializes in music. I think she's at— in kansas city or or boston or something like that but
2: you often have young musicians on the show that are teenagers Mm. and they're often at high school and i'm always amazed at how poised they are and i think back to how i remember being at 15 16 17 and i was just awash with fear and nerves i wouldn't have been able to play music and sing live on the radio that they can do that it's all power to them i mean they're going to be phenomenal performers as they as they mature
0: i agree if they if, if they can stick with it and and keep uh, keep working on their on their skills because many of them are already quite skilled at, at, at their young ages like you're saying right. and, and they can handle themselves pretty well um i i try to you know get some of the younger uh, younger guys and girls here uh, just because we've got a whole bunch of them around you know and it's a great platform for them to get a chance to to see what it's like you know to perform on the radio and you know it's, it's actually one of the things that KOPN does provide that's really pretty cool there aren't many other uh, venues that uh, you're going to be able to do to, to hear something that, like that but also for the young people to be able to be
4: able to perform
2: you know we were just saying off air we need to get one of those uh, Facebook live or the live cameras in here so that mm. people can tune in and watch them play as well yeah. and, and other things sometimes my interviews are Absolutely. If I've got actors on they might be performing a part of a scene and yeah um, so yeah it would be great to be able to broadcast that as a video as well
0: yeah it would add another uh, whole dimension to the to the programming here at KOPn we're gonna we'll
2: add that to our list
0: our list is getting pretty long Diana here <laughs> I'll tell you what speaking of young kids why don't I play a quick one here by the sweaters sure they were amazing they were here um in august of 2019 and talk about a young band uh the the kid that plays bass for the sweaters i don't think he's more than 13 years old or so and it's another family affair it's him and his brother and then a third young man who plays the drums but this is a a three-piece and uh, really good songwriting and some great vocals and Let's people check it out here. Great. Okay?
2: Take it away, Mike. All right,
0: we'll be back here in just a few minutes. It's the Diana, Diana and, and Mike show. show. Wow, that was pretty good. <laughs> and uh, this is the sweaters. You're listening to it. It's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM and streaming on the web at kopn.org.
7: smell like skunk No, know it's your fault why won't my face do what yours does all I'm asking is peach fights. why my socks inside out songs even come from Stay in the night in my lonely Stay in the night in my mind Is it long enough to get me inside?
0: Wow, the sweaters. uh, I forgot what a great performance they did that morning. I tell you what, Diana, we've got some great young musicians and some great mature musicians around here. And we were talking during the break about what a cool... Right thing it is that they're working together.
2: It does seem like, there's somebody on the show the other week that was talking about how fabulous the music scene now is and how it's really burgeoned in recent years and it went through a bit of a doldrums but now it's really back and forth and it mm-hmm. seems like mm-hmm. you know all of these amazing young musicians are inspired and supported by the older, more mature musicians that have been around for a while and this scene of support uh, is is so wonderful to be part of and to see and you see it at, at venues you were talking about how fabulous the venues are they really supportive of local bands and a lot of cities venues don't, don't do that yeah and so yeah. we are really lucky to have places like the blue note and rose and cafe berlin that really give all of the young artists a chance
0: they sure do those uh the people that that run those uh facilities thanks we appreciate it because uh, without places to play we're having to fight real hard to get a gig and a lot of towns are like that it's not that easy and uh, here they really do a great job of of making the opportunity available for for the bands uh, to perform. And you know what, it also raises the bar for the bands. They they realize, wow, if, if I can get my act together and we can get, you know, a set of songs where they're tight enough, Pat will listen to it over there at Rose and he will get them an opening gig right. uh, with with somebody. And, uh, you know, so it, it sort of uh, encourages the musicians as well because, you know, when the scene's not, when it's the opposite of that, then the bands are just kind of like, well, we're never going to get a gig anywhere anyhow. So, you know, uh, we'll practice you know it's kind of half-assed the whole scene gets kind of like that
2: Mm -hmm. and great great practice i mean just the opportunity to play in front of audiences and uh, and on the radio i mean it's wonderful that we have such a loving and caring arts community in columbia missouri
0: i love it i love it and uh the visual arts and the and the the, the theater arts are, oh my goodness, are, theater. No, are no different. The theater, I mean, just w- what I learned sitting across from you and just the camaraderie among that gang. I mean, mm-hmm. my gosh, it's like a big family.
2: It is a really big family. It's exactly it. And then they talk about it as being a family, their theater family. And, and I'm just on the periphery of it, and it's such a nice family to be part of. So I'm very grateful to all of the theater people that let me be part of the family a little hanger on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they would say a little bit more about you than that. But anyway, let's talk about what we're going to hear next from... Uh, uh, speaking of the arts,
2: so the next piece I have was recorded in May, and we had Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri mm. and Jenny Hipscher on the show. And Elizabeth had written a new original work called "Being Here." She's
0: like the busiest woman in the arts. She it seems does. like.
2: <laughs> there are a lot of very busy people <laughs> in the arts, but Elizabeth not only is an amazing actor, but she also directs and she writes. Yeah. I mean, she writes her own plays. She adapts plays. And right. um, so, "Being Here" was an original work that she wrote, um, and she had uh, it was a small crew. I think it might be a four or five people and Jenny Hipshire came in she was one of the key actors in the piece and she sim- subsequently left and moved back to, and to New York to do a master's degree so that was the last show that Jenny did in Columbia and they held it at the industry it's that little tiny bar um, behind the Tiger Hotel mm-hmm. and what I love about Greenhouse this is this is Greenhouse Theatre I should say productions what I love about them is that they perform in unusual spaces mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you very rarely you never see them in a theatre they did perform Hedda Gabler at the Missouri Theatre in uh, September September, but we were all on the stage mm-hmm. there was no one in the seats in the auditorium the the actors and the audience were all on, we're the, on stage, the stage which was really cool because you Sometimes. had this kind of big dark brooding theatre behind you so Being Here was in a very very small venue mostly they only seat you know 40 or 50 people at mm-hmm. a time mm-hmm. they are only over on for one weekend if, if you miss them then they're gone right. so you've got to keep an eye out for Greenhouse Theatre Productions and um, so this was Being Here this is an interview with Elizabeth Brant Palmieri and Jenny Hipshire.
0: All right, here we go. It's KOPN Columbia, the Diana and Mike show.
2: First, though, we dive into a brand new tragedy comedy, written and devised by Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri, founder and executive director of Greenhouse Theatre Project. Since founding Greenhouse with Emily Adams in 2011, Elizabeth has been instrumental in bringing a very different style of theatre to Columbia. Highly physical, visceral performances which send a corporeal ripple through their audiences. She's a master of adapt classic works from Shakespeare to Ibsen and is also a stellar playwright of her own hard-hitting, insightful works, the latest of which is called Being Here. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri.
8: Wow, Diana, that was an introduction. I think I can just leave the room now. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that. And I'm, I'm delighted
2: that you have brought along with you today Jenny Hipshire too. Yay, Jenny
8: Hipshire, one yeah. of our company actors and artists with Greenhouse for the past three years. Long time alum. It feels like you've been around for a long while and you actually moved to Columbia because
2: of Greenhouse Theatre. I did, yes. So yes. I do feel like I wait for Greenhouse Theatre projects to show up, like, I wait for my birthday. And then a show is here, and it explodes with energy, and then it's over, and I'm always left wanting more. (laughs) How how does the cycle of show production
8: and presentation feel to you, Elizabeth? Oh, wow. It's like each production is like a lifetime for me. So I feel like I've lived many 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 lives i feel like i'm born in the process and uh you know i struggle <laughs> through it and i i find myself i lose myself i find myself i lose myself and then i die <laughs> and then i you know have to pull myself back together and and uh get to work on the next project so so yeah that's kind of in a nutshell my creative process
2: <laughs> do you feel changed by every production you create
8: Absolutely. I think that, you know, why else do we embark on these kinds of artistic journeys, but to seek some kind of transformation? Sometimes, you know, it's something that I'm anticipating to happen. And sometimes that transformation is unexpected. And sometimes the rug is pulled out from underneath me and you just kind of have to work with it and be flexible and, and understanding.
2: Jenny could you pinpoint a show that you feel you left the different person after you'd finished acting in it
9: that one's easy for me it was definitely Frankenstein um yeah that one just it pushed me physically emotionally artistically just in all the ways and and I really I loved I was so in love with that character that at the end of it it really did feel like this death and I had to kind of grieve it and it and and the characters still lived in my body for a long time, so um, yeah, that was definitely the one.
2: Last time you were on the show, which was really only just a few weeks ago, for your Living Room one-act series, <laughs> and now already you are back with a brand new work called Being Here that mm-hmm. you wrote, devised, directed, and are performing in. Correct. Overachiever. What,
8: <laughs> what is Being Here about? Being here, um, wow, it's about a lot of things, but at the center is a woman's story who this woman, Annie, is dealing with her own demons. You know, she has mental illness, and depression anxiety these these things that have been living in her body for a long time and uh, as you embark on this journey with her uh, we start to dig in and uncover um, the roots of, of some of these issues that she is dealing with and we're able to kind of uncover those things uh, through her therapy and through a friendship that she uh, devised or creates you know throughout the the piece itself it's like a finding-yourself story, and yet at the same time, once once you find one aspect of yourself, I think it peels back a whole slew of layers that then you have to deal with as well. It's a multifaceted piece. At the heart of it, I think it is kind of this... Really basic, realistic story that I think a, a lot of us are going to. When you see the piece, you're going to relate to these characters. You're going to know these people. These people are you. These people are friends of yours. Uh, people you, and and actually in the process, like the pre production process uh, before I started writing it, I I interviewed and spoke with several community people who deal with mental illness or who are partners of people who deal with mental illness and you know and it was important to me to work with people in the community talk to people in the community because i wanted this piece to be a community piece because ultimately it is about how we need we need a group of people to take care of ourselves you know what i mean we can't do these things on our own but this piece specifically like dealing with Annie's issues i was really drawn to this idea that like what if all these tragic greek characters were actually in therapy you know if we like take them to a modern era and we like bring them into this like situation where they actually have access to maybe some help in these situations what what would that what would that look like and so that's kind of where we're at and with Annie working with her therapist joe they have this push pull relationship where they're challenging each other throughout the piece and you see you know you see how that plays out and how it's able to crack into some things
2: so tell me what drew you to mental health and what prompted you to create a work about depression
8: mental health is something that almost everyone i know deals with in some capacity and i think that there's a stigma around it and we don't feel comfortable as human beings as communities as a country really discussing it but I think that we're kind of in a crisis right now and we do need to you know bring the conversation to the table and make it a more you know, <laughs> natural thing to to talk about personally I myself dealt with postpartum depression after I had my child and I you know I'm just in a community of people where I'm listening to what's going on and I'm empathizing and I, I'm i compelled to, to create these kinds of complex characters. But like I said, they're characters that I think are highly relatable. And even though I was going off these huge Greek themes, when you like whittle it down, they're just everyday people dealing with these everyday issues. Most of the time, the dance and the music, when that's occurring on stage, it's telling a story. It's not random fluff to like, no, we have a dance number. It's not that at all I, that's, anyone who knows Greenhouse and me would know that that, that would not really be the case I, I wouldn't just like throw a dance number into something although even if I wanted to I, I wouldn't do that but this was this was the piece where we needed it and so the dance tells you know part of this story and um, I'm, I'm interested I'm fascinated in emotions that live in the body and the fact that you can't always access them through talking about it sometimes you have to puncture or break in in another way and, and sometimes that comes from some kind of physical therapy it changes the emotions really fast and in in the moment and that was what i wanted there's just like this shift and you feel it and you'll see it too and, it, and I think it's going to be hard for people to sit still. <laughs> that was Elizabeth Brant-Palmieri and Ginny Hipshire from Greenhouse
2: Theatre Project talking about their production, which was on in May called Being Here. Let's throw it back over to you for some music.
0: I remember the movie Being There. <laughs> Being
2: There with Peter Sellers. I loved it. <laughs> that was one, a good movie. One of
0: my favorites from back in the day. <laughs> Yeah, great stuff Elizabeth. I think she's fantastic. She's involved in so many things too.
2: She is. She you does. Were saying that. She
0: writes and directs and does been acts mm-hmm. as well.
2: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah,
0: crazy amazing scene we have here. All right. Here is one from Bartholomew Bean and he's been with me a couple times over the last couple years, but this is a song that was dedicated to a friend of ours who passed uh, about six months ago or so his name was Don Penny and many people are familiar with Don he went by Dino and uh, you may remember the music of Dave and Dino back in the days and then you know he also had uh, all kinds of projects that he projects that he'd been involved in over the years but anyway Don died middle of 2019 or so and this is a song by Bartholomew Bean it was uh, sort of dedicated to him so we'll be back in just a few minutes it's Diane and Mike on speaking of the open mic radio
2: <laughs> see you in a minute
0: at the art show
10: yeah this is a song that i that i would like to play for for dino and it's uh it's called a it's called acquaintances although it goes a little a little, little closer to home now but I, and
0: I haven't done it for a long time but I, you know I'm trying to get into the, the course and let me kind of play with it here let me go ahead take your time and people enjoy it. this is Bartholomew Bean you're listening to on an open mic radio KOPN Columbia mm-hmm. and this one's for Dino Penny one from the wonderful Bartholomew Bean. He's like a troubadour, that guy. He, he's a re- really remarkable artist and, and artisan as well. He's a fantastic carpenter and if you need your windows replaced or if you need tile done or, I mean, he can do almost anything, but he's a really skilled carpenter but also a great songwriter and he just kind of runs around the country and travels in that funky old van of his and plays music and does odd jobs. And
2: So write. he really goes far afield.
0: He really does. Yeah, he's been all over this world, and really just carrying a guitar and a small uh, piano-type device and making his way.
2: Living the dream.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you what. (laughs) Yeah, he's a great farmer as well. Yeah, he actually makes his own wine and and uh does all kinds of things. Gosh. <laughs> anyway, he's also a great friend of mine and I'm sure glad I had a chance to spend some time with him over the course of uh last couple of years on this program. Diana, we have something at the top of the hour that I'm sort of Ooh, excited about because Me too. I I can't believe that I'm saying it, actually, because you sort of roped me into this. I'm not sure how it actually happened, but the whole Eurovision phenomenon, I didn't even know it existed a year and a half ago, two years ago. And now it's like I can't wait for the 2020 version of Eurovision, which you apparently are going to be present at.
2: I am. Do we want to talk about this now? Or should we have some more music and come back and do the big Eurovision uh, chat all right, right yeah, before Eurovision? Okay,
0: let's do that. We'll do that at the, at the top because, of the hour. Because, you know, hour. once I
2: get started, I'm probably not going to stop.
0: That's right. All right. So <laughs> stick around for that in a few minutes, folks, we'll have a, a, a review or a—I guess it's a, a chunk well, it's of a the show back. that you did. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's, it's a, I, the, the show that I did this last year about Eurovision was a little bit history and then and then there was a big interview in it too. So it's it a little bit of a historical mm, look that's to, right. to, to you know, set the scene for what Eurovision is.
0: I'm remembering now. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're, I'm going to play one here from Austin Jones and the Bootheel Boys. They were here with us in August, toward the end of August, and Austin Jones, another local hardworking musician, and uh, sort of in the,
11: mm,
0: I don't know, Americana country style, but writing some great songs, and another real hardworking guy. He's been doing it for a long time and finally starting to pay off, and his band is really uh, making some waves, and they came down here and spent some time with us once again at the end of August. So here's one from Austin Jones and the Bootheel Boys. I forget the name of this song, but... uh, Maybe it'll be apparent. <laughs> Probably when <laughs> we let me hear the hear the <laughs> lyrics. All right, it's the Mike and Diana show. We'll be back in just a few minutes, and at the top of the hour, it's Eurovision.
2: <laughs> We're going to Europe.
0: All right, here we go.
12: Said the rambling life is the best, Lord, Lord. Ram- The men and gamblers who all told their stories well, they all told the stories well. They said in California the streams ran with gold and money grew on the trees. There the streams had run dry The trees had all been laid away The trees had all been laid away Pretty soon I was a desperate man I was sleeping in ditches eating out of trash cans Sleeping in ditches eating out of trash cans But then a man came up and he shook my hand Said, come with me, I'll make you a rich man Looking down the road as far as I can see I'm blind as a man can be I'm blind as a man can be Searching for shadows and old silhouettes But I ain't caught one yet No, I ain't caught one yet If there's a God up in the sky I think he likes turning blind eyes he likes turning blind
0: I... All right, there you go. Once again, that's Austin Jones from August 30th, 2019. It's Mike and Diana, pardon me. It's, it's Diana, Diana and, and Mike, Mike
2: show. Ticking <laughs> yes. now again towards 10 o'clock. It's definitely Diana and Mike now, show. Now it, it really hour. is,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> And it is KOPN <laughs> Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, now back to Diana and me.
2: And as they say, and now for something completely different.
0: Yes, and this really is—it's time for
2: Eurovision. From Austin Jones to Eurovision. Oh, right. you, really, that's a pretty—that's a pretty that's huge leap. a stretch. Leak. Yeah. It's a huge leap for mankind. That's all right.
0: Well, let's make it. Let's make a, a reasonable <laughs> transition and tell them a little bit about Eurovision, so they can forget about that last song.
2: Well, I, I'll, I'm going to talk about the history of Eurovision in the piece, but I have been a huge ah. fan of Eurovision since I was a child, and uh, I, I, I reconnected with it in the late nineties when I lived in London um, for a while after living in Asia for a few years and I'd hold... Eurovision parties at, at our house and I'd give everybody score charts and we'd score things and we'd give extra points for a little key change and we'd give points for choreography and <laughs> costumes <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and these Eurovision parties kind of I'm not saying I started it but they began to I began to go to more and more of them You're a
0: trendsetter. Um, it's I'm just, a trendsetter, that's it, it,
2: that's it and so now I have a Eurovision party in Colombia. So the Eurovision Song Contest is the largest music competition in the world. Um, it goes out to about 100 million people across Europe and Australia Australians love it so much Mm. and so it's been a a big now 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 Australia even though they're not in Europe Australia gets to compete in Eurovision and um, and so I'm very excited that uh, for the second time in 2020 I will be going to the grand final of Eurovision in Rotterdam Uh.
0: Oh, you're killing me.
2: I got a VIP pass. Because I
0: wanted to go to your party this year, and now I'd have to go to Sweden in order to be there. I
2: think I might just set up my house ready for the party, <laughs> and then everybody can come around. <laughs> because it's, all of my girlfriends right. that usually come around are like, well, you what are we going
0: to do? We need one of those key code locks, and you just give the the, the invitees the particular code, and then we can go all just go trash your house for, for a week Set up the
2: European like. canopies on the table and the European booze, and then just you know set set the recorder ready to go or the TV ready to go, and you can just all let yourselves in. And uh. All right, so when does that happen? happening? Well the grand final is on May the 16th and um, there were two semi-finals on Tuesday the 12th and Thursday the 14th of May and it's happening in Rotterdam and the reason it's happening in Rotterdam is that last year Holland won so whichever country wins one year they host the following year and then there's a big competition within that country for which city will host it and so Rotterdam won that and so we're going to go to Rotterdam and see the grand final.
0: How long is the entire competition? I don't want to give away what we're going to hear in the piece but is it a month Slong thing, or is it just a week slong? It's
2: almost a year. I mean, countries are already at the end of the like already now so we're beginning of the year I've, I'm already seeing online countries have already chosen so each country has their own competition mm-hmm. to choose the song that they're going to put forward for the Eurovision Song Contest and so countries are mm-hmm. already posting the songs uh, and, the, and the bands that have won the, their in country competitions the biggest, the biggest fans of Eurovision are the Swedes I would say and in Sweden it is a month long competition in cities all around Sweden every <laughs> weekend there are different competitions in different cities it's a major tv event and then they have a grand final and they choose the song for eurovision and they put so much love and effort into it that they win almost more than anybody else i think right now ireland is the country with the most wins in over their 65 year history of the eurovision song contest Um, but i think sweden is about to catch up with them particularly if they win this year i don't know what no one knows what they're putting forward this year but anyway all
0: right quick little setup on our piece here
2: Um, so this is uh, this is a piece I recorded in May and I was so stoked to get an interview with the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest this is like talking to God for me I mean this is just amazing and so um, thanks to a friend of mine Ina who works for the European Broadcasting Union, she managed to set up an interview with Yonol Sand. He was in Tel Aviv, and so we talked on Skype. And uh, so I put a little history around the interview so that people in mid-Missouri would know a little bit more about Eurovision. So as Yonol Sand says, take it away, Mike. There we go. I'm going to be a trifle self-indulgent and veer off on a bit of an international tangent. Probably my earliest musical memory is gathering around the television set with my family in the early 1970s and tuning in to an annual music programme that was being broadcast live across Europe. The show felt unspeakably glamorous and I felt like I was part of something so intangibly huge. From my sitting room in the much less than glamorous northwest of England, I was watching something that was being viewed simultaneously across a swath of the continent. This was the Eurovision Song Contest. The contest was started in 1956 as a way to bring Europe together after the war. And that first year, the contest was broadcast from Lugano in Switzerland. And it was primarily a radio show, though it was also taped for the few Europeans who had a television at that time. That first year, only seven countries took part, and Switzerland won.
5: Fra couleur du ciel, parfum de mes vingt ans.
2: Flash forward to 2019, and Eurovision is the biggest music competition in the world, and with over 100 million viewers across Europe and Australia, it is the most watched TV show in the world that is not a sporting event. Yet despite its massive presence across Europe, it remains mostly an unknown entity across the United States, except maybe in major metropolitan LGBTQ circles, where it made it to the edge of American consciousness in 2. 2015, when a broadcast deal was done with Logo TV. But even though you don't know about the contest, you probably do remember this.
1: By ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one.
2: the Swedish pop group ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest with their song Waterloo, which went on to become an international hit and was the start of their legendary career. And they are not the only contestants that you might actually have heard of. At that same contest in 1974, the Australian singer Olivia Newton-John, remember Greece and Sandy?, Well, she represented the United Kingdom with the song Long Live Love. In 1988, a then relatively unknown Canadian singer called Céline Dion won the contest when she sang Ne Partez Pas Sans Moi for Switzerland. In 1997 the last time that the United Kingdom won the contest, it was Katrina and the Waves who sang the winning hit Love, Shine a Light. And for anyone with an interest in the world of drag, 2014 was a huge Eurovision year when the fabulous Conchita Wurst, representing Austria, won with this James Bond-esque number.
3: Waking in the rubble Walking over glass Neighbors say we're
2: troubled Well, that time has passed So why do I love this show so much? Well, aside from the sequence, the bouffants, the spectacular staging, the choreography, the big disco numbers, and yes, the cheesy Europop songs, it is this one incredible night when my disparate continent of cultures and voices all come together. Oh, plus Australia. They've been in the contest since 2015, mainly because they love it so much. It started out as a 60th anniversary gimmick, but it all went so swimmingly that Eurovision invited them to come back again the next year and the next. I guess what I love is that for this one night, we are all united and connected by a music contest. The idea that over 100 million people are all sharing in the same experience is so satisfying in our age of media silos. Sometimes when people ask me why I love it so much, I just say, I don't know, because well, why indeed? But I put this question to the man I call the god of Eurovision, the Executive Supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest, Jon Ola Sand, who chatted with me a couple of weeks ago on Skype from Tel Aviv, where he was already ensconced to oversee the arrangements for the 64th annual Eurovision Song Contest. So My first question to you, Jon is why do I love Eurovision so much? I'm sure there are studies done on its popularity. What is the answer?
13: <laughs> uh, the answer to why you love Eurovision Song Contest so much is because this is a unique event happening every year, and it has happened every year since 1956. It has been traveling all over Europe, to every corner in Europe. It's been uh, in, in in a lot of different countries, and every country adds its own flavor to the Song Contest, which means that it, it always develops, it always uh, evolves. and um, And this, of course, creates excitement and and, and love for the contest, uh, I'm sure. It's also the fact that if you win it, you host it. Uh, This excitement is not like with any other big event or sports competition, um, but, but it, the fact that every, every artist on that stage can bring Eurovision Song Contest to their territory, it's a fantastic opportunity and it creates excitement around the Song Contest. I could talk for hours about why you love Eurovision Song Contest, uh, but I'll leave it with that uh, in, in the first round.
2: For me, it's something to do with the fact that there's 100 million people all doing the same thing as me, that we're all connected. There's this kind of unity of people amidst such a diverse continent. It's fantastic.
13: Yeah, yeah this is the moment we share together. And uh, you don't watch Eurovision Song Contest alone. You, you. For, first of all, you know that it's not 100 million, but close to 200 million people all over Europe and abroad who, who is at the same time uh, enjoying Eurovision Song Contest. But it's also an ideal, uh, an ideal event to watch together with friends and family. You don't even need to watch it at home. You can watch it in a bar. You can watch it on public squares all over Europe. So it's, it's a fantastic get-together event that unites people. And that's also the purpose for Eurovision Song Contest.
2: Now, as the executive supervisor, your job is to enforce the rules of the Eurovision Song Contest and to oversee the TV production and monitor the voting procedure to make sure a valid result is returned. Now, I love the voting part of the show almost as much as the songs. But explain to Americans how the voting works. Well, the,
13: the voting works like this. There is a jury composed of five people in each of the participating countries that will give their uh, votes and score all the songs apart from their own uh, song or the, the, the entry that comes from their country. In addition to this, they, there is an open public voting uh, via SMS, app or uh, ordinary phone where you can place up to 20 calls for the song or the songs that you like the best. These two different results is combined into one result and then it's split up to points. Uh, and it goes all the way f- from one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten, and then the magic twelve, douze points, which is the top point you can get and the top score you can get uh, when you uh, are in the Eurovision Song Contest.
2: Now, the way that you do the voting has changed in recent years. So it used to be uh, just a professional jury. Then it was just a telephone vote. But in recent years, it's become both again. So you have 50 percent telephone vote and 50 percent public vote. Is that correct?
13: That's correct. And this was mainly done to to get uh, a professional uh, view on the songs because we saw uh, when we only had the televotes or the public votes deciding this, we saw that uh, more and more acts, they tried to... To make something that could attract only the, the viewers out there, to make a lot of noise to get attention, um, the juries obviously, which uh, are music professionals, they can can view the acts and songs differently and give a different kind of score. And we see that every year that it, that it's not necessarily the same opinion in the juries as it is. Um, among the TV viewers and this is good because then we see that uh, the quality of the songs um, they it, it's, it's getting they are getting better they are much more focused on, on, on doing something that also can attract the professional jurists and not only the viewers at home
2: I'm curious about which country has the most active voters
13: Oh yeah, it's, it, it depends uh, because uh, it it actually depends uh, which country that uh, goes to the final because the excitement in the country. To vote also for other countries, as if you go to the final. But I will say that it, it, it's strong uh, interest in the UK to vote. The Nordics are always high up there. They they, they cast a lot of vo- votes, but they are small markets. Uh, Germany throw in a lot of votes. Uh, also um, Greece, uh, very active. Uh, they have also a lot of diaspora. The Polish very active so uh, but generally we get um, a good amount of votes from from all corners of europe which means that uh, it is it creates excitement and people would like to be part of the decisive um, or have a decisive role who is going to take the trophy home
2: Now, within Europe, there is the long-held belief that each country votes geopolitically. Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland all seem to vote for each other. The former Yugoslavian countries always used to stick together. Nobody, of course, votes for the United Kingdom. So does voting analysis support this theory? No, not really. It's a fact that
13: that in uh, regions in Europe, like the Nordic region, a lot of uh, the artists that performs are known in in the, in the whole region. So, f- for that reason, it's uh, it's easy to, well, you are you are familiar with the artist. It's also a sort of one share its common taste. It's the same in the Balkans. So, and and you see. Uh, if you look at the winner over the past years, uh, you will see it's it's huge variety when it comes to territories, when it comes to type of songs, when it comes to to almost any any uh, uh, yeah any any way you can judge it, it's uh, right. it's a huge variety. So so uh, no, it's it's no clear pattern there.
2: Now Another kind of slight controversy that has reigned since 2000 is the designation of the big five countries, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain and Italy, who all automatically get included in the final because they make the biggest financial contribution. Is this fair?
13: Well, first of all, it's not only because they contribute financially uh, substantially to the Eurovision Sun Contest, but they also represent huge markets. And, and no one can imagine that we should have a Eurovision Sun Contest on air without having Germany, France and UK in participating in the final. It will be a huge loss for. For uh, when it comes to viewership. Uh, it will be a huge loss when it comes to, to enthusiasm, engagement, uh, and all of that. So there are really good reasons to keep uh, the big markets in. If you ask me if it's fair or not, well, look at the results over the last years. I firmly believe that it's beneficial to be in the semifinals, because you have the chance to perform on that stage in front of millions of audience um, in the semi-final Uh, and and by that familiarize yourself with uh, the audience. This is the setup how it is, and everyone that participates in Eurovision Song Contest agree upon it. So, uh, in that sense, it's fair, it's a part of the rule, this is how Eurovision Song Contest is, and, and, and everyone participating in Eurovision Song Contest agrees to this.
2: Now, the United States remains a black, or at least a charcoal gray hole on the Eurovision map. What are your plans for conquering America?
13: Well, we might uh, succeed to get it on air in the U.S. already this year. Again, we have had uh, an agreement uh, with Viacom, as you know, over the last years. So it has been uh, on logo in the States. Uh, so, And we uh, hopefully we will get it on air again this year. So we have to build it slowly.
2: Logo TV is not accessible to a lot of people. So, in the old days, I used to be able to stream it live from Eurovision.tv website, but that avenue was, was stopped when Logo TV got that contract. So, I, I hope it gets No, so. this, this,
13: this is not correct. It wasn't stopped because Logo TV got that contract, it was stopped because uh, YouTube, they don't have an agreement with the collecting societies in the US. Hence, we cannot. Uh, agreed to have uh, the the song contest performed there because the rights holder will not get their the payback that they should have so this has nothing to do with logo tv
2: Oh, well, I, I apologize to Logo TV then. <laughs> I just seem to give away at the same time. Now, am I right in thinking that Madonna is performing at this year's Eurovision? That is yet
13: not clear. We have not confirmed that from DBU, as you might have seen. When, uh, if, when and if, if let me put it this way, if Madonna is going to perform in Eurovision Song Contest, they will be announced on our official channels and not on any other blogger or site or, or anything. It's not confirmed.
2: Now this year the Netherlands are the firm favourites to win with a beautiful ballad called Arcade, sung by Duncan Lawrence. Are you allowed to have a favourite?
13: Mm, um, no, not really. Uh, I, I don't have any favorites. It's it's not a part of my job to have favorites. So uh, so no. I uh, it's it's a it's a really good song. He's, he's a great artist. It's a lot of strong interest this year. So, uh, but uh, I don't have a favorite.
2: Well, thank you so much, Jonala. We will be watching the 64th annual Eurovision Song Contest live in Mid Missouri on May the 18th from my living room. So do give us a wave. Thank
13: you and take it away. Thank you Yonola.
2: <laughs> Thanks to Jan Olasan, the executive supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest. And the man in charge not only of making the world's largest music competition go smoothly in Tel Aviv, but also tasked with making sure all of Europe's votes are properly recorded. That was so huge. I don't know if anybody listening in Mid Missouri knew how big a deal it was to get an interview with Yon sand.
0: Well, I knew how. I know how excited you were and still are, just thrilled by the whole thing. And I'm, I mentioned briefly in the first hour how I had never even heard of Eurovision, but now I'm a fan and Excellent. I can't wait for 2020. I want I'm Eurovi- jelly now. I'm totally jealous that you're going to be sitting there in Rotterdam right in person. And maybe you can score some cool interviews, you know?
2: I'm, I'm hoping to do that. I'd like to do a whole show on Eurovision this year. And I'd like to talk to some of the Americans who are behind the scenes or singing in bands in the Eurovision Song Contest. So that's one of my goals for 2020. More All right. Eurovision.
0: All right. <laughs> well, I've wanted to play a song by the January Lanterns because it's January. And they were here in December. Perfect. So here's my chance to play the January Lanterns. Fabulous husband-wife duo. Were you here when they were here? Yeah, I think
2: I was around somewhere.
0: Yeah, Uh, anyway uh, Kristen and Andrew and uh, they call themselves the January Lanterns. Very pretty stuff and wonderful harmonies and yeah, they were here about a month ago or so and you can listen to one of their songs right now. We'll be back with the Diana and Mike show in just a few minutes. It's KOPN Columbia.
2: 89.5 FM. Bleep.
14: This one's called uh, Preacher's Room. (laughs)
7: A message in a broken bottle in the
10: sea.
0: one from the January Lanterns listen to it here on the Diana and Mike show it's KOPN <laughs> our Columbia. annual
2: joint show where we review the past year and all the things that we've enjoyed well some of the things we've some enjoyed like we were saying so earlier
0: tough tough to make some of those decisions oh my right? goodness yes we're impossible. still we're still fighting about it right now <laughs> I
2: know, I'm still trying to decide <laughs> which of the which of the following ones do I want to do next segments do I want to do next
0: all right well let's uh let's do that what do you got anyway thanks to the January lanterns by the way fantastic stuff okay
2: well back in April there was the Unbound book festival mm-hmm. which was fantastic Mm-hmm. And um, and I had two authors that were in town for that. Crystal Wilkinson from Kentucky and Joanna Luloff, who lives, I think, in Colorado. And they were in town to talk about uh, their books and about being writers. It was on April the 19th. And they both came into the studio at the same time for a chat. And they were just beautiful people to talk to. Want to hear it here? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. My next guests are both writers and educators. Joanna Luloff is Associate Professor of English at the University of Colorado, Denver, and is no stranger to Columbia, having completed her doctoral degree at the University of Missouri. Her latest book and debut novel, Remind Me Again What Happened, was published last June and explores prime of life memory loss and what it means to rebuild your life through other people's memories. Crystal Wilkinson is Associate Professor of English at the University of Kentucky. Her novel, The Birds of Opulence, has won numerous awards It is a lusciously told story of four-generation matriarchy in a bucolic small town as they live with and sometimes succumb to mental illness. Joanna Luloff and Crystal Wilkinson, it is a delight to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Crystal, The Birds of Opulence is one of those rare books that as soon as I got to the last page, I just wanted to go back to the beginning and read it all over again because the place you created was so full of love. Tell us about opulence and who the birds are. Well, thank you for saying that. That's
9: a wonderful compliment. Well, opulence is um, my imaginative town. I call it. I can never pronounce it, but it's like Faulkner's Yana. Topois or uh, Ernest Gaines' town that he continues to write about in Louisiana. So I I think my literary imagination always lives in rural Kentucky, because I'm an African-American woman from Appalachia, and so I always go to the landscape first. And those characters are characters who continue to haunt me, like many of them appear in my second book, which is a short story collection. And I started writing this novel. And I kept saying, "You're not Mona and Yolanda. You're you're not." And they kept saying, "Yes, we are. Tell our stories. You have to tell the rest of our story." So, I write what haunts me, and so I was haunted by these characters and their situations, and probably because of the thread of truth that's in it, because my own mother uh, suffered from mental health issues for many, many years, and I had a hard time writing about it, sort of directly. So. Once it was presented in my characters, it opened up this wonderful vein of my imagination to be able to talk about it. And it's something we don't talk about.
2: Your prose is so lusciously lyrical. There are many times when I just got locked into a sentence. I just kept looping through it over and over because the imagery was so rich or the structure was so compelling. Do you think like you write, or is that lyricism hard-fought?
9: I think that I do think like I write, which is so different from how I speak. Um, So maybe that's why I'm a writer. But um, I also think I think like a poet, often sometimes more than I think like a novelist or like a, a fiction writer, even though I write fiction primarily. And I edited this book as though it was a poem. One of the fights that took so long with the book as far as structure was that I kept thinking, this is my third book, so it should be like some big booming traditional novel and so I fattened it up and had it over 300 pages and it just felt so false it felt false to the idea of uh, memories to, to mental health to community to ancestral memory that I was trying to get at and so then when I went back and I pulled everything out I edited it the same way I would edit a poem I read sentences out loud I struck entire passages, entire scenes, and sort of boiled it down um, to the essence so that it had not only what was there sort of straightforward, but sort of this implicit quality, the same sort of quality you want in a poem. So I love to hear you say that because that's that was my intent.
2: Joanna, with your book, I found it hard to know where to stop when I was reading Remind Me Again What Happened. Your three characters have consecutive chapters, so we see the story unfold from three vantage points. And I always ended up reading longer because I wasn't sure at whose truth I wanted to stop reading for the night because I'd go to sleep thinking about their truth. So tell us the premise of the story.
14: So the premise of the story is that Claire sort of the central character, wakes up in a hospital room one day and doesn't know how she got there and has no access to her recent memories. And her husband, Charlie, they're a little bit estranged and she doesn't know why, kind of comes in and... Uh, offers to take her home and sort of look after her um, back in Vermont. And then their mutual best friend, Rachel, is the sort of triangle to a longstanding relationship. And so all three of them have shared a kind of deep friendship and deep history with one another. And sort of under the pretense of helping Claire recover from this kind of mysterious illness, they're also trying to get her to remember old injuries and sort of slights from the past. I thought of it almost as they're each being sort of detectives into their own past, and each character has really high stakes in remembering things certain ways, but that memory is always subjective, and that they, they need... Claire to substantiate something from their own past and and she can't do that. I also felt sort of tangled up in all of their subjective truths and I guess what I wanted was the reader to kind of have their loyalties constantly sort of shift and in different kinds of motion and wonder who in fact is telling the closest version to the truth if, if something like that can even exist between these three people. So
2: how did your relationship with Claire, Charlie and Rachel change as you worked through
14: the drafts? That's a great question. You know, I think when I first started writing the novel, to me, Rachel sort of seemed the most altruistic and sort of the most generous at first, that her intentions seemed the most good. And then that started to get really muddied um, as I kept writing this, uh, this narrative. And I think that in some ways, she carries the most anger and hurt and confusion around the past. So it was really sort of fascinating to see her start to change and to become maybe a little bit more vindictive or a little bit more self-selfish. And um, and Claire actually sort of softened over multiple drafts because I think that in some ways... I wanted her to be a prickly character. I wanted her to have a lot of flaws, but I also wanted her to feel vulnerable and understandable and a mixture of all of these sort of positive and negative traits. I think Charlie was the one that stayed the most consistent all the way through. I kind of understood his limitations and also his neediness and sort of his vulnerability is probably the most over the course of the book. Now,
2: at the center of both your books is the issue of mental health. Joanna, in your book, it's the effect of a virus and its long-term ramifications. And in yours, Crystal, the burden of chemistry imbalance and how it can affect multiple generations. And I was struck in reading about you, both how each of those instances relates back to your own mothers. So Joanna, tell us about your mum and how
14: her experience became the kernel for the novel. Thanks for asking about that. My my mother, when she was 45 years old and I was 19, um, contracted this very strange fever that nobody could really diagnose and she lost huge pieces of her memory and um, never really got them back again. And suffered from short-term memory loss for most of the rest of her life. And she once told me that she felt so disoriented by having to borrow other people's memories. And that phrase stuck with me. And it took me a lot of years to write this book also and to get enough distance to kind of approach that concern through fiction. And actually, when I was a student here at Missouri, we started exchanging recorded messages to one another where she would choose a photograph from her parents' photo albums when she was a small girl. And these memories were super clear to her. And she would narrate these stories of what she saw in the photograph. She would um, send me the picture and the recording. And then I would choose something from my life that she didn't remember, take the picture, record it, and send it to her. And um, those exchanges became sort of the foundational I don't know, almost structure for the book that I ended up wanting to write. And I also wanted to think about how memory loss doesn't just affect the person with the memory loss, but that we all um, rely on each other to know our past. And when somebody who is a part of your childhood and your young adulthood can't can't fill in those gaps with you, it's disorienting for those other people too. So it was also important for me that the book not just show Claire's story, but these other characters and how discombobulated they end up feeling because of this other person's memory loss.
2: Crystal, I loved something that you had said in an interview about your mother, about how you remember thinking, how do we know that she isn't the most brilliant of us all? What if she simply sees things that we do not see? Tell us about her and how she influenced your writing. Well, my mother
9: was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic when she was 20 years old. I grew up most of my life thinking that she had had a nervous breakdown, like after I was born. So, you know, as children are wont to do, I sort of carried that guilt of that I was the cause of my mother's illness and not knowing until I was an adult that she had actually been mentally ill, diagnosed before I was even born. So I I grew up with sort of the f-
2: the love and the fear so the birds of opulence and remind me again what happened are debut novels for both of you both of you having previously published short story compilations now as a reader I'm generally not a fan of short stories because I miss the friendship that develops in long form fiction like I said you know I feel like I knew everybody in your novels and it's like only being allowed to go window shopping rather than going and buy something so as writers
14: having done both now where does your heart lie? Joanna let's start with you you know, I sort of cheated in my short story collection because it's a linked short story. So I got to carry characters over because I, like you, you know, I, I start to feel really attached to them and want to sort of see them in other situations or with other characters sort of seeing them. But what I love about short stories is that you get to explore a kind of compressed world, and I feel like I get to play with language a little bit more too, and that. I have more sort of investment in the sentence, even because everything matters so much. There's such a compression of space, and I feel like the conflicts also can feel really alive and really, really contained in a short story.
2: Mm-hmm. Crystal, you were nodding in agreement. Yes.
9: Um, well, my first collection was a true collection of short stories, Blackberries, Blackberries. The second one is a, a compilation too. It's a it's a connected short stories, all on the same street. So. It was sort of a novel in stories, and then to make the leap to the novel. But the short story is my first love. And I think...
2: Because pro- you're a poet. Probably,
9: <laughs> yeah, the short story. But even more than than poems, the short story is my first love, which I think is a perfect combination of, of the novelist and the poet. In my opinion, um, the short story is related to both of them and I'd probably write short stories for the rest of my life only if I could
2: That was Crystal Wilkinson and Joanna Luloff who joined me in the studio in April during the Unbound Book Festival.
0: Wonderful interview
2: Really lovely. Mm. One of my favourites of the year. Let's go straight to music, Mike, because we are having so much fun and there's so much to get through still. All
0: right. I had a great time a few weeks ago with Blake Gardner and the Farmers. Here's one from them. We'll be back in a few minutes. It's the Diana and Mike Show, KOP on Columbia.
15: Searching two of us in start something new. Big wigs, they got me hopping in my shit No, I can't quit this And I'm mad that I was paranoid But it's hard to feel it I'm safe and I keep it trippin' I'm through the hood and I'm a troller at my back I stop to backtrack And I get myself off the map Cause these are demons when I'm stupid Try to send I'm keeping, keeping on me now My feet, may they will stop below Just piece and all this thing I mean, I'm feeling like I'm only one but It's hard to shoot, I'm back Change the
0: <laughs> Holy smokes. All right, there you go. Blake Garden and the Farmers. Great stuff. If you get a chance, go see them. All right, Diana, what do you got next?
2: Well, we're going to just have time for one more piece. So I'm going to go to uh, an interview that I did back in May with Mark Vital. Mark Mm -hmm. is the costume designer for Mizzou Theatre, MU Theatre Department. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds you, reminds me anyway, of all of the amazing talent that is behind the scenes. So we focus a lot on all of the great actors and directors that are producing these wonderful plays that we see in multiple venues around Columbia. But behind the scenes is where the rest of the iceberg is the the technicians and the lighting people and the costume designers and i had seen mark's costumes in a production of alice in wonderland which was called alice and that was at mu theater department earlier this year and he did these fantastic costumes and um, he was just so much fun to talk to so this is the fabulous mark vitale from mu theater department
0: all right here we go
2: my next guest began his career in Northeast Alabama. Enthralled with live theater, he joined his high school drama program, quickly becoming its first resident costume designer. Today, he is the assistant professor of costume design at the University of Missouri, and recently created the fabulous costumes for the department's production of Alice. His passion for producing works exploring LGBTQ and race issues through visceral and evocative storytelling is what guides him also. Welcome to the show, Mark Vital.
16: Thank you for having me.
2: Now, it is perfect timing that you are here this week, as it means we can start off by talking about last Monday's High Camp Met Gala in New York, an annual fundraiser to raise money for the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute. Tickets cost $30,000, and it is regarded as one of the most exclusive social events in the world. Of course, it is packed full of celebrities whose arrival outfits must have every costume designer drooling. So, Mark, with such a high drama selection of outfits on display this year, and the theme of the evening being Susan's. Sontag's 1964 essay entitled Notes on Camp. Who achieved true camp design?
16: I kind of want to say Cardi B. I
2: loved Cardi B. And
16: yes. I, I know Gaga came out. She was extra with like let me hold the runway for 15 minutes and just do costume changes. But I don't know if any of her single looks really was like camp to me. I agree. But Cardi B came out. It was red. It was stunning. It's Something you're going to remember.
2: It was designed by, I think, designer Tom Brown. And it was this kind of almost a quilted affair with this yes. giant train. And then she had $250,000 ruby nipples, apparently. That, that was what set the costume I off, only so.
16: have dealt with Walmart like <laughs> plastic <laughs> jewels. So like the fact that someone went out and bought real stuff just for like a one-time showing.
2: Exactly. I bet they were borrowed. I bet they weren't actually purchased. So do you mm. look at that and think, I'd like to be doing that.
16: I do. And I'm kind of like, okay, well, I'm here teaching. And I want to keep doing that. I love sharing with students, getting them ready to go out into the workforce, and like giving them that confidence. Because sadly, a lot of students are coming in already beaten down. And I'm like, you're 18 years old what happened but yeah i would love to have like a little bit bigger budget you know and like really go at it with like i don't know real squirtsy crystals
2: now i saw your work in alice mm-hmm. and that one seemed like you had a lot wider reign you weren't just having to go to target and buy jeans and a t-shirt i mean you got Correct. to design these fabulous alice in wonderland outfits so how often do you get to do that just to have much freer reign to design?
16: It's not very often. A lot of times we are, especially at Mizzou Theater, we are trying to do work that is relevant to the community and relevant to our nation today, so we can be like that mirror for uh, our audience to look at themselves, look at social issues, and think about how can we solve these problems. Alice was a really awesome godsend. My butter and jam is like, yeah, butter, bread, jam, all that good stuff, Um, (laughs) is uh, doing fantasy and high concept type work. So it was super exciting to get to just have this free reign. A lot of our shows tend to be more modern, like we did 28 hours this spring, and all of those clothes were pulled from the actors' wardrobes because it was a modern piece, and we were just trying to really get the idea of, you know, every man um, participating. So yeah, not very often.
2: So you started your career by falling in love with theater at high school, Mm -hmm. but then you found your voice in costume design. Tell me about your costume design awakening and your early inspirations.
16: So when we were were in high, or when I was in high school it was more like a club of sorts we had our professor and she guided us through things but a lot of it was hey guys we're doing this show um draw right like come up with ideas brainstorm. It was this giant collision of creation um and she found out that I could draw really really well um and that my mother also could sew so that yeah dream team (laughs) dream team right and we ended up doing like bigger and bigger shows because like I was so invested in like making them look really good Um, I kind of think of my time there as being a golden age because there was these other students in my age group who were also on fire about theater and they took over the other disciplines of like scenic and lighting and stuff and we took what kind of looked more like traditional high school theater where it's kind of pulled and found and sad and like made into like full-on stuff. I remember like my senior year we did The Hobbit which you know has like a dragon in it and like a bunch of dwarves and all this stuff and we did it and we had a dragon on stage that was life-size and had smoking nostrils and glowing eyes and it was
9: awesome.
2: Now you're starting all these costumes from scratch. Are you building everything from the first stitch up or are you kind of getting existing clothing and adding on to them or is everything every piece of fabric When I
16: was young and because my mother loved me, a lot of it was from scratch. Um, And I give her kudos because she did a lot of that work in two weeks and we're talking like 40 students to dress. Um, sometimes with the costume changes. But when I got into college and started really learning what costume design can be, I have gone to pulling things, seeing what do we have to work with. Because if you have like that perfect red dress for the lead, why build it?
2: Was there a point at which you were vacillating between fashion design and theatrical costuming, or has theater always been your love?
16: Theater has always been my love, because if I were to be a fashion designer, my clientele would be very, very niche. Um, Alexander McQueen is one of the the designers that I do like in fashion. And I remember he did this one line where it's lots of reds and golds and whites, and it feels a little vampiric in a way. And that would be what I would want to wear on a day-to-day basis in the real world. And most people wouldn't want to do that (laughs) because it's cumbersome and... (laughs) Maybe a little too much just for breakfast.
2: Were you ever lured by the thought of Broadway and Hollywood, or did you want to stay in education?
16: I was lured by that, but what I learned, grad school is really great if you want to really get to know yourself and really see who you are, because it's like a pressure cooker. Um, But while I was in there, I realized that I am not a person who would be satisfied in the rat race of New York. Mm -hmm. Because when when you're a freelance, you have to work two or three costume design jobs at one time to make rent. And with what some of us get paid, it's not necessarily going to be enough to live in New York. Um, I also am a very creative person, so I'm wanting to just do other things. Like I want to maybe get into some drag, learn makeup, hair, more so than what I know currently. Um, I like Dungeons and Dragons. I, I might want to write a novel one day. And I also got into doll repainting. I don't know if you know about that. It's so when you basically just kind of take a like a Barbie doll or whatever, and you might repaint the face into like a like a realistic portrait of a person Hmm. um, and then like build their clothes from the ground up so a lot of hobbies a lot of things i like doing and if i was strictly just working as costume designer in new york i wouldn't have time for any of it
2: now do you think that good costume design should be seen but not be one of the principal players should it just kind of melt away or is costume design kind of one of the characters in the play
16: it depends on the play. Alice in Wonderland uh, was originally conceived as something else, and then this is what it became. And so costumes kind of was put up to the forefront and was like, OK, you got to make these costumes like bigger and better now. Um, so that's what happened. But for the most part, I think costumes need to be almost a background element that support, not disappear, support the show and the narrative. Because you see things, um, whether you're aware of them or not, But if that thing, say, like, this dangle earring, because they're doing a close-up and it's a movie, um, if that dangle earring isn't there, then she feels maybe, like, a little naked or, like, you don't know what the setting is.
2: What about things like Game of Thrones? Were you kind of drooling when you saw that and wishing that you'd been on that team?
16: When you look at the the behind-the-scenes on those costumes, like... I am dying, there there are so many details and things that they built from scratch just to be an unnoticed thing on a dress. Like th- there's these bug like brooches or whatever that are like hand, I don't know if it's crocheted or what they're doing, but they're using like me- real like metallic threads and just making these little brooches to go on a dress and half the time no one's gonna know that they're there, but you'll feel the sumptuousness by it it being there. It's like when you look at Halloween costumes online, how a lot of those seem cheap or plain. But when you look at, you know, Broadway level or like Game of Thrones level um, costumes, those start to feel like clothing. And that's because all the details are put in there. And that's because um, there's understructure and there's thought and the fibers were like picked for function and not just because it was cheap.
2: Now, flash forward, it's 2025. You are working on Broadway. And, um, and you're up for a Tony Award for costume design. What is the musical or play that you have designed for? And what do the costumes look like? What's your dream production oh that you're going to win a Tony for?
16: The thing is, I don't know if I could give you a dream production just because I would want it to be an original piece. Like I would want it to be something new and exciting, probably in the fantasy genre. Um, <laughs> and just spectacular something that basically was a costume show where half the reason people are screaming is because of my costumes and then i can show up in like a riff of one of my designs to the tony awards i would love to have like a suit with a train on it that you know is bigger than everybody else's outfit
2: thank you so much to university of missouri assistant professor of costume design mark vital for sharing some thoughts on theatrical costuming it was really a delight to chat to you I loved that one that was such a fun interview Mark Vital, costume designer at Mizzou he was on the show back in May we have time for one more song Mike what's it going to be we
0: have such great talent around here Mark included on the theatre side and of course all this music so anyway a quick one here from one of my favourite musicians and one of my favourite people around town this is Dave Durnley from just a couple weeks ago and we'll be back to wrap it up Mm -hmm.
11: I was just going to say, I was going to play
0: your request. Oh, the one that you sent me a few weeks back.
11: Yeah, yeah, this is a new song, too. Never been played out in the world anywhere.
0: Just, uh, my kiddies like it, so maybe you guys will, too. All right, everybody, you're listening to it here. It's Open Mic Radio on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, this is Dave Durnley. Check it out. Business of faith
11: is its words out of ten people Asked well, there were ten terms heard talk it about sin like it's just nouns and verbs Ain't that sons and your daughters your neighbors and kin Some stand by the fire In a circle of friends Some stand in the cold Cause you won't let them in In that faith Ain't that faith Well I don't trust a God Who speaks through a man Eager to draw his lines in the sand Look in your eye and then put out his hand Ain't that faith Ain't that faith to lie with the lamb
0: There you go. David Durnley wrapping it up here. And now Diana's going to take care of business. What else we got to do? That was so much fun, Diana.
2: That was. Let's do it again next year.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to talk about Eurovision again for sure. <laughs> we will we'll, definitely we'll know who won. be
2: talking about Eurovision or who won in 2020. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm just going to round up the show, as I usually do, with a look at some of the arts events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Colombia. And really, it's still very, very quiet. It's the beginning of January. So it's not a huge amount on. But um, that said, tonight from 6 till 9, it is the first, first Friday of the new decade with plenty That's to right. see and listen to in the North Village Arts District. At Artlandish Gallery there is a live musical evening with Keith Fletcher, the Marley Magna Trio and Dave Bandy and friends. Down at Rose Music Hall, the Fried Crawdads are on stage for happy hour and the Sega Browders Gallery opens their January show tonight plus there's always something fun to look at at All Street Studios. At Talking Horse Productions the Ponies improv troupe are on stage with two blocks of Family Friendly, whose line is a Denny Way style improv comedy and they start at 7 and 8 and after that they switched over to their after dark comedy for 18 plus audiences and that's for the 9pm hour. Admission is on a pay what you can donation basis but the suggested donation is $10 for each block. This weekend is the first of four consecutive weekends celebrating the 6th annual Missouri Fest with 13 shows each celebrating a different (sighs) musical genre played across eight nights in two venues and featuring 50 Missouri artists. Tonight the Blue Luna opens the series with a general MoFest, I think, at 8 o'clock. There's nobody listed for the 8 o'clock. Evening, but it, it says there's an event at 8 p.m., so I'm not sure. But anyway, um, you can get your passes uh, over the whole fest. And tomorrow night at the Blue Note is the Missouri Country Fest, and that kicks off at 7:30 and features Porter Union, the Common Shiro's, Jack Grell, Lily B, Moonflower, plus Nick Guzman, and the Coyotes. Meanwhile, over at Rose Music Hall tonight, it is the Missouri Metal Fest with Provoke the Colossus, love that name, Decimus, and Baxter Stockman, and that starts at 9 p.m. Tomorrow night at Rose, the most Punk Fest has the stage with bands Radke, It's Me Ross and Gorbza, and that'll gets underway at 8:30. Also tonight at 7:30 at the Ballroom Academy of Columbia, Mid-Missouri, traditional dancers are holding the first contra dance of the new year. Tomorrow morning from 9 till 12, there is a free audition workshop for young thespians hosted by Trips Children's Theatre, and that's open to students from grades 3 through 12. And the auditions will be held at Hickman Hall, and that's at 1200 East Broadway. And following on from that, next Wednesday and Thursday, Trips uh, will have auditions for its May production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Auditions will be from 6 till 8pm, and like the audition workshop, they're open for students in grades 3 through 12, and that so that's coming up in May. Sunday afternoon, there is a docent-led theme tour at the Museum of Art and Archaeology about the development of perspective as illustrated through the museum's art collection. That's from two till three and is led by docent Alice Landrum. And that's about it until next weekend. If you've decided that 2020 is the year you get more creative, there are plenty of art classes starting at the Columbia Art League, Access Arts, Resident Arts and Mid-Missouri Arts Alliance. So check out those arts organisations before the arts season heats up again to see if there's something there for you you have been listening to the mike and diana open mic speaking of the arts radio <laughs> show our annual joint show on 89.5 fm kop columbia with both me Diana Moxon, and the awesome sound engineer and radio presenter mike hagan we'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the mid-missouri arts curtain until then you know what to do stay arty columbia